Hello and welcome to episode number 15 of the Ecuador Insider Podcast. I am Jesse Bayer, joined as always by my partner Darnell Dunn. We are the co-founders and managing partners of Abundant Living Ecuador. And we, as the late, great Yogi Berra said, deja vu all over again. We recorded uh, a podcast yesterday, which by uh, com- completely objectively speaking, was perhaps the greatest podcast ever recorded by <laughs> mankind. And uh, our technician here uh, forgot to turn Darnell's microphone on. So we were... Uh, that's, we're Jesse, what he meant to say was, that's why it was the best podcast. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you know? Um, so we're back uh, recording again, recording now on Saturday, February 20th. Uh, 2016. Um, we have a jam-packed show for you today. There is lots of news, lots of goings on, both in Ecuador and in the world, that we will touch on. Um, but first, a couple of business items. Um, the If you're in the U.S. or Canada, you can call us toll-free at 888-999-0948. That's 888-999-0948. You can, of course, catch us on our website, abequador.com. That's A as an apple, B as in boy, Ecuador.com. And you can email us at info at abequador.com. Um, I wanted to take a minute to step back today and cover a little bit of background. Um, perhaps you've been listening to this podcast and you've read all our stuff on the website and you already know all of this. If you don't, um, I just wanted to give a brief summary of who we are, uh, what, what we do, um, how we got to this point, you know, why we uh, feel like we're in a position to talk about the things we talk about. So Darnell uh, and I came to Ecuador in uh, 2013, uh, July 31st, I believe we flew down. Um, my background, I, I was living in Brooklyn. Darnell was living on Waltham outside of Boston. Um, my background is in real estate investing, so I was uh, buying buildings and selling them in, in New York City in Brooklyn. Um, Darnell's background is in financial services. Darnell was working as a, in an invest, investment advisory role uh, for Putnam Investments for a number of years. Um, I had this idea to, to come to South America and, and do a big development. Um, Darnell resigned from uh, Putnam, and, and we came down here to do that. Um, from there, we spent a year looking for land, went through the due diligence process on a bazillion properties, uh, figured out, you know, figured out everything. So we, you know, from from getting our visas to learning the language to getting cell phones and bank accounts and uh, purchasing land, we've invested in Ecuador, we've done business in Ecuador, obviously, with the company and other things. Um, so that's kind of how we got to this point. Um, the company was really founded um, based on the premise that Ecuador is an incredible place to live. Um, Southern Ecuador in particular, we think has just an amazing amount going for it. And yet it was difficult to access, um, both from the standpoint of being able to find properties and equally as important, uh, from this or importantly, uh, from the standpoint of being able to navigate the, the purchase, the, the process of purchasing land here or, or purchasing real estate here. So we launched this company to help buyers and sellers find each other, to help uh, foreigners discover Ecuador and be able to access Ecuador and all that it has to offer. And here we are, um, well, you know, two and a half plus years later, as far as being in Ecuador, 
The company opened its doors to the public around January of uh, last year. Um, so a little more than a year that we've been up and running, maybe a year of preparation prior to that. Um, and here we are. So that's our background. I also wanted to touch briefly on some uh, news that's happening with the company. So we have now finished the website for the real estate tour. I can't give you the uh, web address yet because we're still sorting out the domains. Um, we'll have that sorted out in the next few days. But the real estate tour is ready to go. Um, we touched on that briefly last week, so I won't get back into it in detail. But the idea behind the real estate tour is that you can come. It's 10 days. Uh, there's a three-day extent coastal extension. You can come. You can get a sense of Ecuador. You can get a sense of the Ecuador real estate market. And you can also get all of your questions answered. So we're, we do presentations on everything from investing to banking to visas, all of it. Um, so you can come. You can have a hands-on experience of what Ecuador is like and, and all, see all the different places in Ecuador that we think are worth seeing. Um, and also get a sense of the real estate market and get all your questions answered. Um, so that's uh, exciting news. We The first uh, group tour will be starting on January 4th, 2017, a little ways away, obviously, but um, that's when the first group tour will start. Uh, we will be running individual tours year round. So if you want to come check out Ecuador, get all your questions answered and, uh, you know, hang out with us on a tour, you can schedule that uh, via the website, which I will announce uh, the domain for um, on next week's show um, and uh, and come and do that. The other pieces of the company that are worth mentioning. So we have also a relocation services component. Um, as up till now, that's been something we've been uh, doing for free for people who buy real estate through us. Uh, what that provides you with is A to Z help in relocating to Ecuador. So if you uh, need help with your visa, with banking, with cell phones, with professional contacts, with you name it, projects, you know, projects very importantly as well. You know, we have uh, great crews for, you know, all, all kinds of projects, engineers, architects, whatever you need. Um, you know, we'll really hold your hand in whatever process uh, you're going through. So we offer that service uh, free to people who buy real estate through us. We also are launching a standalone service. That site is under construction. Um, that should be ready within a week or two. Um, and then you'll be able to purchase relocation services as a standalone product as well. Uh, getting your stuff here is another big one uh, that we help with. Um, you'll be able to purchase that as a standalone product and you know move to Ecuador smoothly like you know like an expert. Um, the other two pieces are, and they're kind of connected, are investor services and property management. So those are two other thing, two other services we provide. Basically, if you know, let's say you want to put a fund together of farmland in Ecuador, or you want to put a fund together of investment uh, properties, for example, um, you know, rentals, uh, or you want to just buy an apartment building and rent it out. Um, you know, we can manage that entire process for 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 you. Um, you know, all its components, um, including, you know, coordinating. Uh, we have uh, bilingual attorneys and accountants here who can coordinate with your attorneys and accountants from wherever you're from to ensure uh, cross-border compliance. And, you know, that touches as well on property management. So let's say you're coming, you're buying a property, but you're only going to be here three months a year, or you're only going to, you're going to move here in a year or two, or you want us, you know, you're busy and you need projects done. Um, those are all things that we handle through the company, and I'd like to say, you know, we handle them very well. 
Um, so that's a little bit of background, a little bit of company updates. Um, we wanted to start off today with some news as far as properties, and then we will get into uh, a whole bunch of news on the domestic and international and finance fronts. Great. Um, first is a price reduction on uh, one of our most popular listings. It's a 70-hectare property just outside Loja, um, borders Podocarpus, has incredible views of the city, multiple microclimates, and a number of pristine water sources. We've just uh, reduced uh, the price of that property from 250 to uh, 218. The owner currently has an offer on the table, uh, but if um, he's still open and it, and it still hasn't closed yet, so for anybody who has interest in that, I encourage you to um, to check in with us via email, as Jesse said, at uh, info at abequador.com or toll free from the U.S. and Canada at eight 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 nine 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 zero nine four eight. I mean, that's a property that kind of has everything that people, I mean, it doesn't have a finished house, so you have to build a house. But as far as what people are looking for who are moving to Ecuador, it really has everything. I mean, climate, views, water, flat, secluded, borders Podocarpus National Park. I mean, when I say water, I'm talking like absolutely pure, pristine water that's sourced off of the land, has a river, um, and the price is exceptional at this point. Um, yeah, that the the offer he would the owner will probably accept the offer that's on the table around two weeks from now if he doesn't have one better. Um, so that's something that would need to be moved on. But at that price, it's it's worth moving on. And to see more pictures or video of the property, um, go to the website www.abequador.com. Click listings, and under Loja, this property is titled the Finca with everything. <laughs> said very dramatically <laughs> you guys have to read it that way too by the way when you look at the listing um what else is there other uh property news you uh, that that was all on the uh, property news front we uh we are in the midst of a stretch of absolute shit weather um these last what are we pushing three weeks now two weeks something around there it's uh it's very strange because this is this time of year is usually the nicest in loja but it's been uh, cool and rainy for quite some time now, which is a little funny because um, my mom came to visit and I told her that, you know, the weather would be exceptional uh, because it had been for months. And, um, you know, it was it rained, it poured every day and was freezing. <laughs> so. Must be something about moms that bring bad weather because when my mom came last year, it was the same thing. Yeah, and my dad that last year as well. It's been, uh, we're on a, yes, we're on a streak of uh, parent, parent, uh, related shitty weather. <laughs> okay, so then on to Ecuador news. Um, hmm, let's start. I guess we could start with Correa. Um, Your boy. My boy. Uh, Correa has announced. Um, I mean, he said this all along, but he's re-announced, I suppose, that his decision to leave office is final says he is putting family priorities first. I will try to hold a straight face uh, while reading that. Um, so I'm not going to read the article, but um, Correa says he's not running again, or he has re reaffirmed that he's not running again. Good news, bad news, depending on how you look at that. Um, you know, Correa's, you can make the case that Correa's done a lot of good for the country. I mean, the guy, when he was elected in, what, 08, right? Uh, when he was elected in 2008, he ushered in, 
you know, years of both political and social stability, incredible amount of infrastructure. Um, so lots of progress on lots of fronts. Um, but he's also a bit of a socialist and he seems to go very overboard from time to time with his policy proposals as far as mechanisms of control and taxes. So, um, you know, in a, Great that he did the infrastructure, I guess, to a certain extent, but also it'd be very nice to have someone in who uh, is a little more understanding of what it takes for an economy to run. That was very diplomatic of you. <laughs> a, a bit of a socialist? <laughs> well, he says he's not a socialist. I say he is. <laughs> but <laughs> or not... I believe he said he's a 21st century socialist. Oh, did he? Okay. <laughs> okay. Never mind. Socialist. Um, yes, I'm learning my diplomacy from you little by little. Um, so there's that. Um, another funny, uh, sort of funny. Oh well, speaking of the yeah. market and you know wanting someone who understands the understands the market, um, he recently came out. Well, this is he recently came out uh, actually in November and said that um, about the national airline Tame Airlines that. Um, what did he say about? And this is an article that came from today's issue of uh, Cuenca High Life magazine. Well, I'll just tell you what happened and then and I'll give you his quote. Um, so they are eliminating several routes, uh, selling aircrafts in an effort to cut an operating deficit that totaled $58 million between 2014 and 2015. Um, this is the, uh, Tame is the domestic uh, state run. <laughs> You mean state-run? They were losing money. I know. I know. It's hard to believe. This is the state-run airline here in Ecuador. So they'll be eliminating flights to three domestic locations, ten, the cities of Tena, Macas, and Latacunga, and they'll be suspending international service to both Sao, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And so um, the general manager came out and said, quote, we're suspending service on unprofitable routes and plan to sell assets to return the airlines to profitability. Uh, and if they are not able to do that, they'll be liquidating the airline altogether, which seemed interesting. And raising taxes on all the other carriers. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't say that. That's just they didn't say do. that, but that's what they'll do, yeah. And uh, We're going to fill this income gap by taxing you more. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, so one of the uh, unprofitable routes that are... that. Um, that will be evaluated and potentially cut is the route from Quito to Loja, unfortunately, no. which will be terrible for us. But although um, the you know the interest, I mean, theoretically, if there's not too much red tape, which there probably is, I mean, a private company could pick that up. If you know, probably not running twice a day like they do now, because there isn't demand for that. But three days a week or something, um, you know, you would certainly have demand. Yeah, that would be ideal, and there's carriers that could step right in, land being one of them. I mean, one of the reasons Tame, you know, is not profitable on some of the flights is they run them at the most ridiculous hours that known to mankind. I mean, they have flights at like 5.40 a.m. and 6.10 a.m., and then, you know, your next flight is not until the end of the day. So, like, if you need to get there in the morning, you're driving, like, 45 minutes out to the airport to catch a, you know, 5-something or 6 you know, just after 6 a.m. flight, and you know, but shocking that that's not full. <laughs> so here's the quote that uh, that Correa said in November, 15, uh, November 2015 about the airline. Quote, we cannot subsidize the service 
when commercial companies are able to make a profit in Ecuador? Well, um, you know, good job, genius. <laughs> you just figure that out. Right. Um, but at least he's figuring it out, you know, better late than never. Right. So uh, that's uh, some interesting Ecuador news that kind of so ties into can- the whole you know socialism doesn't work (laughs) well perhaps he can raise taxes enough on the private carriers that they're not profitable either and then you know he'll feel better because everyone will be the same eye for an eye (laughs) um yeah but that would suck for sure if they cut the quito to loja flight they have not done that they're just looking at it um there would obviously still be Guayaquil to Loja, which is what I use, but it would be unfortunate to not be able to fly directly to Quito. You'd have to go through Guayaquil. Right. Plus, I mean, more than about two-thirds of the foreigners who come into Ecuador come in through Quito. Yeah. And they, have, they do have more international options. Yeah. Also, interesting, you know, backdrop. So, domestically, they're talking about cutting flights, and internationally, airlines are picking up Ecuador right, left, and center. Um, JetBlue, I mean, we've mentioned them before, but there's expanded service to Ecuador from all over the world, um, and they keep announcing new ones all the time. Right. Another uh, piece of Ecuador news, so this is also from uh, Cuenca High Life. Um, As unemployment rises, Correa plans to send labor law changes to the National Assembly, saying that a relaxation of some labor laws is necessary to keep Ecuadorians employed. Um... Among the changes is one that would allow employers to reduce work hours and pay, and the pay of full-time employees. Um, so basically they're relaxing the labor laws, which is very good news, um, you know, not because I believe in exploiting people, but because the labor laws drive unemployment. Uh, the labor laws are overbearing uh, and they, you know, they lead to unemployment um, because people, businesses cannot afford to comply with with the labor laws and so what a lot of businesses do is they they run uh family run businesses because they don't want to they don't want to get into the whole um labor law uh they don't want to bring that set of uh oversight um into their company and so they they often don't hire people um and so it's Correa is admitting here, he actually, quote, we made a mistake with this law, Correa admitted. Um, We were acting on humanistic principles, but that is not practical under the economic circumstances we face today. Refreshing honesty uh, out of a politician there. Um, Humanistic principles, huh? What are those exactly? (laughs) You know, that we're all equal and everyone gets more dictated by law. Mm. (laughs) Which is working well in Venezuela. Uh, maybe a good segue. Um, the uh, let me pull pull the Venezuela article up. There's a and Darnell. I know you had some funny stuff on Venezuela as yeah. well. Let me. Okay, here we go. Washington Post. Uh, this is out of the Washington Post. Where's the date? February 11th. Uh, headline of the article. And the reason I the reason I bring up Venezuela. I mean, it's it's you know it's in South America. It's worth talking about briefly, just in terms of regional news, but. But it's it's to me it's interesting because it's really the um, uh, the socialist ideology played out. So you had you know Chavez took power in Venezuela. I want to say in '98, somewhere around there. Um, and since then, you've had you know what is this 2016? So you've had uh, 16 years, right? 16 years of of socialism. 
um, in Venezuela, and you know the country is on the verge of collapse. So, Washington Post, prepare for the worst. Venezuela is heading toward complete disaster. Um, the political drama in Venezuela, where a populist authoritarian government is attempting to cling to power despite losing a legislative election by a landslide, tends to obscure a deeper crisis. Though it is awash in oil, the country of 30 million people is facing an economic collapse and a human humanitarian disaster. Venezuela already suffers, and this, some of these numbers just get funny, uh, Venezuela already suffers from the world's highest inflation rate, expected to rise from 275%, yeah, you thought that was high, wait, to 720% this year. One of, it, one of the highest murder rates and per- pervasive shortages of consumer goods ranging from car parts to toilet paper. Power outages and lack of raw materials are forcing surviving factories and shops to close or limit operating at opening hours. According to a local survey cited by The Economist, the poverty rate is 76%. But what do you mean? In socialism, everybody's rich, right? Uh, compared with 55% when Hugo Chavez, the late founder of the regime, took power, okay, in 1999. Um, so, you're, so you're talking about a country that has that's just 30 million people, that has some of the, the most productive soil in all the world and has the largest proven oil reserves in the world, yet people are starving. Yeah, well, and they, they're importing food as well. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, worst of all, the country is running desperately short of food medicine. Venezuela's, Venezuelans spend much of their time waiting in lines outside stores, but increasingly the shelves are bare. And just to give you the background on that, the government has taken control of food production in Ecuador. And they've also taken... In Venezuela. In in Venezuela, excuse me. And they've also um, taken control of uh, purchasing. So they, they 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 control the production, they control price, they have price controls, and then they also have... Uh, rationing, that's the word I'm looking for. So, you know, if you want to buy a chicken, for example, in Venezuela, you buy it on uh, the day that your cedula or your ID card says you can buy it based on the numbers. So, you know, so yeah, that's, you know, and things like cooking oil, chickens, uh, you know, basic goods and, you know, yeah. And you have to like, you have to, when you go and buy, the, go stand in line for hours to buy a chicken, which uh, I actually had a, an old roommate of mine here in Ecuador. His, his father is, um, is married to a Venezuelan woman and they live in Caracas. And he went to visit him for a couple of months. And he was saying that, you know, yeah, they had to stand in line for chickens. Then you, you can only go on certain days, as you were saying, according to your ID card. And then they mark you to make sure that you don't come back when it's not your time to go. To try and pay for another chicken. Right. Because, and what ends up happening with these price controls too is that, especially on, on the border with Venezuela, oh, by the way, I mean, to even go and stand in line, you've got to give them, you know, your whole life story to be able to do that. You've got to show them your national ID card, your voter registration, a utility bill from where you live to prove that you're not only Venezuelan, but that you live in Venezuela. To have the right to pay to purchase things. Exactly. It's good when government plays the middleman in in all transactions. It has great results. So you've got a situation now in Venezuela where they just, 
at those prices, at the price controlled prices, it's not the market price. Right. And people in, you know, bordering Colombia are willing to pay more for cooking oil or rice or meat. And so they're willing to pay the market price. So what happens? Well, those goods get moved on the black market to Colombia. And then Venezuelans end up having to to um, to go to Colombia to buy their basic goods at an inflated price. Yeah. Uh, here's I'll, one or two more quotes from this article. The chairman of the largest domestic food producer has said if, that if the government does not act quickly, well, I would argue that if the government acts quickly, it will not get any better. <laughs> <laughs> if the government does not act quickly uh, to seek aid, uh, does not quickly seek aid to import food, it will, quote, it, quote, will cause grave harm to ordinary Venezuelans. Uh, the math behind these warnings is stark, as economist Ricardo, Ricardo Hausman recently outlined in the Financial Times. At current oil prices, Venezuela will earn less than $18 billion from exports, exports this year, while it owes $10 billion in payments on the $120 billion in debt it has racked up. That leaves $8 billion for imports, but even after contracting 20%, 20%, imports were $37 billion in 2015. They have eight of that. And Venezuela now imports most of its food. Even with a debt default that the markets expect, it's hard to see where additional hard currency will come from. The country broke relations with the IMF almost a decade ago, has no ability to obtain private loans, and has nearly exhausted its liquid reserves. It already owes China its latest benefactor, $50 billion. Not, that, only, not only that, but uh, since the new president, Maduro, has taken office in April of 2013, from April 2013 to December 2015, the value of their currency, the Bolivar, fell 97% on the black market, which, you know, the black market the real actually market. reflects um, what people are willing to, what people are willing to transact for, uh, which is, which is pretty interesting. Because they have, a, they have an official exchange rate. You had that number. Yeah, the official exchange rate for a while uh, was... Six Bolivars, uh, or excuse me, 6.3, and they've recently moved that up to 10. 10 to 1. 10 to 1. And the, and the, do you have the black market rate in the front of you? The black market rate, uh, I don't have the this exact This is for number. the U.S. dollar, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I don't have the black market number in front of me, but it's, it's, it's much, the difference is, is Yeah, is it's in the hundreds, I'm pretty sure. Um, that sounds about right. Let's see. This says here... Sixteenth, sixteen hundredths of a of a of a dollar. So uh, a dollar will uh, a, a bolivar will get you sixteen cents. This says here. Um, but that must that actually that sounds like the official exchange rate. Here I'm looking up here. Here we can. <laughs> this is a Bloomberg article from. 2015. Venezuela, the country with four exchange rates. <laughs> Venezuela can simultaneously be the world's cheapest and most expensive country because of its multiple exchange rate systems. A dinner at an upscale restaurant, including drinks, can cost as little as $6 per person or as much as 160 depending on how you do the math. Figuring out the tip isn't any easier. The creation of a new alternative exchange rate this month this month, which led to a 70% devaluation, has left foreign companies operating in Venezuela with a dilemma. Do they try to pull their money out of out at the weak, new weaker exchange rate or hold on, waiting for the stronger exchange rate they were promised by the government? <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, 
Let's see. Okay, four. If you count the illegal the illegal black market, Venezuela's government sells dollars for six point three. 12 and 172 bolivars per dollar. The first two rates are used for imports of government authorized priority goods, including food, medicine, and car parts. The third rate, introduced on February 12th, can be used by anyone who doesn't receive authorization to buy dollars at the first two preferential rates. On the black market, one dollar currently fetches about 190 bolivars. So this is and this is old. It's gone up since then. Yeah, they the uh, they changed the official rate. This article that I was using um, came out yesterday, February nineteenth. Where um, was that from? That was from Bloomberg. Yeah, and uh, there's a quote from the president that says, "I'm giving I'm giving orders in an economic emergency to construct a new model." He said in a five hour speech. <laughs> <laughs> quote. I say this to the people. I need your support. Yeah. And they're saying, uh, and they go on to say in the article, that he, he has to tread carefully because the weaker Bolivar means that the government will probably raise the cost of subsidized foods most Ecuadorians rely on but need to wait in line for a week to buy. Here's an article. This is a more recent, January 7th of this year, uh, out of Mises. On the black market, the exchange rate is currently nearly 900 bolivars to the U.S. dollar. That is, if you can find anyone selling dollars, or more importantly, looking to buy the badly tarnished Venezuelan currency. So, you know, vote socialist. Didn't he also have a, uh, didn't the president come out with a socialist sneaker as well? Maduro, too? Yeah, because I mean, you know, when your country's falling apart, you got to distract people. So, you know. They do talk about a presentation. I mean, the man, the, the president of Venezuela was on stage in a tracksuit presenting a sneaker ter termed the socialist boot, I think, or the socialist sneaker. And, um, you know, the socialist there you boot have it. that he's going to place on the throats <laughs> of the people of Venezuela. <laughs> oh, Lord. All right, moving on. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reason, so. You know, Ecuador is not Venezuela, and, and that's an important um, thing to keep in mind. Um, you know, the president here does have socialist leanings. Um, however, um, you know, he only took office in in uh, 08, and the socialist ideology has lost its appeal here. So you're not going to have a situation like Venezuela, from my perspective, um, here in Ecuador, and that's... I, I tend to be fairly negative about these things. That's uh, <laughs> that may be saying something that I don't. I don't believe that's going to happen here because I don't believe the people will accept it like they absolutely did in Venezuela. Um, but it is a cautionary tale, and I think that's the that's the um, the message that I'd like people to walk away with is just that you know those kinds of things are happening to a certain extent all over the world, not just in Venezuela. Absolutely. Yeah, I was reading some stuff out of Brazil this morning, which I don't have in front of me, but, you know, very ugly there as well. Um, okay, uh, moving on. This, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot on this show about the dollar, about other currencies, uh, debt-based money, uh, investment classes, gold and silver, real estate, um, if you, you know, there's, a, there's blogs about it as well. Um, um, I think uh, Darnell penned a blog recently. Uh, what was the name about, about uh, securing your food and water? 
Yeah, it's like securing your water, food and water sources now or something like that. Okay, so that's maybe three blog posts ago. Um, I recently wrote one on uh, investment, uh, the global investment landscape. So if you want to read more about our thoughts on investing and how all of the uh, things that are going on in the world sort of fit together, you can find that now. Yeah, so Darnell's was why fundamentals say secure your land and water now. Mine was the global investment landscape. Those are the last two blogs you'll see on the website. There's an older one called Asset Classes, which is a, a featured post on the on the blog page of the website. Um, so you can get all our thoughts there, and we've certainly talked about a lot on the show. Um, and, you know, the hits just keep on coming. Um, you know, we've been telling you for a long time um, about the banking system and, and how that's going to play out and gold and silver and real estate and all these things. It's interesting um, from time to time to go and, and look back. Um, there's an article here from 2013, uh, December of 2013, out of European Parliament News. The headline is Deal Reached on Bank Bail-In Directive. Um, Parliament and Council Presidency negotiators reached a political agreement Wednesday on the draft bank recovery and resolution directive, the first steps towards setting up an EU system to deal with struggling banks. This directive will introduce the bail-in principle by January 2016, uh, thereby, you know, here we are, thereby ensuring that taxpayers will not be first in line for bank failures. Right. Taxpayers, you know, well, that's, I'm not going to get into that, but taxpayers certainly are also uh, footing the bill. But, but you know, the idea of a bank bail-in, which basically means that your money that's in the bank is, is confiscated, um, you know, this is now, uh, which, they, which they did um, to some degree in, uh, in, in uh, Cyprus. Um, and, you know, we all saw what happened in Greece and we've seen with, with the bank bailouts <laughs> uh, in the U.S., um, you know, this is this is now uh, uh, um, not law; it's uh, policy. This is now policy. So, um, you know, your your savings accounts or your bank accounts are not safe um, sitting in in banks which are insolvent, and they're all insolvent. Even the ones that have some cash on hand um, are still insolvent, and that's a, we can get into that. That's the reason they're insolvent is because of the banking rules and laws surrounding how money is allowed to be lent when the bank is the bank doesn't the banks don't have money um so interesting to look back on that and then think about what happened over those next years with the with the bailouts and bail-ins and so forth taking place around the world um yeah we had a uh there were a couple of other articles i know the uh the larry summers one was one i wanted to cover but there was another one that you had that might have been a better segue. Um, oh no, no, that was it. That was the. Uh, that was it. Um, well, here actually, you know what? You're right. Let me. While we're on this subject, um, there's a couple others we can talk about. Um, so is it, this is out of um, <clears throat> this is out of Zero Hedge from the 15th of of this month. Um, the headline is the euro tumbles as Draghi admits ECB will quote buy busted bank loans. And I'm not going to read the article. Um, they, they sort of, <laughs> they basically said they won't buy the loans. They won't buy the loans, but they like put the mechanism in place to be able to do so kind of thing. Yeah. Back in um, 2013. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's, uh, 
talking about bail-ins and bailouts, there you go. And again, I want to just make clear for people. So when we're talking monetary policy um, and we hear governments or central banks talking about um, <clears throat> talking about, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, I forget. But for example, in the U.S., they use the term stimulus, um, but it, it all leads to easy money policy. Um, and so what you're talking about when central banks are talking about buying bad loans or governments are talking about stimulus or central banks are talking about stimulus, all of this equals printing. And the more printing, because we have a debt-based monetary system, the more printing that takes place, the more debt is incurred by central banks and governments, namely governments, because they're the ones that are paying back the interest on the printed money to the central banks. So when you hear those terms like stimulus or, you know, when you are in this very low interest rate environment, which we talked about a bit, I think, last week, um, <clears throat> what that means is you're going to see the money supply increase which it has exploded over the last uh, 10 years, and you're going to see debt increase because those two things are one and the same. Um, so I think that's just important to understand when you're talking about these things. Um, another article out of Mises as well from February 11th, uh, European central banks get ready for more easy money. So, you know, this is what we're talking about. On January 21st, 2016, ECB President Mario Draghi signaled that the governing council quote, or excuse me, the governing council may provide more stimulus at its next meeting in March. Quote, there are no limits to how far we're willing to deploy our instruments, Draghi predicted. Uh, the ECB president is of the view that the monetary stimulus undertaken by the central bank since June 2014 had strengthened the euro, the euro area's resilience to recent global economic shocks. The yearly, the yearly growth rate of the ECB, ECB balance sheet, an indicator of monetary pumping, jumped from minus 8.5% in December 2014 to 31.3% by December 2015, while the, policy, while, while the policy rate of the ECB stood at a record low of 0.05%. And it goes on. But I mean, the point is governments around the world are printing money. And they're... Go ahead. And they're looking for ways to to you know finance these negative interest rates by using capital controls and keeping more money in the system. Exactly. Um, as the former Treasury Secretary under Clinton and the former Director of the Council for Economic Advisors in the White House, Larry Summers, uh, had mentioned in a, a blog post he put out an op-ed, excuse me, from the Washington Post. Um, this past Wednesday, February 16, titled, It's Time to Kill the $100 Bill. Yeah, and this is just part of a war on cash, which we've also outlined before and in blogs. But, I mean, this is going on all over the world because they would like to lock you into whatever they would like to do. And that's a lot easier to do if all transactions are digital. Right, exactly. So, uh, in his current role, Larry Summers is the Charles W. Elliott University professor at Harvard. Um, and he is overseeing the Mosafar Romani Center for Business and Government. They just recently put out a paper um, that uh, talks about how essentially um, paper money is, uh, is a way for tax evaders and proponents of bank secrecy and terrorists to finance their operations. Drug dealers. <laughs> so it was pretty interesting. Um, in the, in the op-ed, he says, 
the fact that, as Sands points out, he's referring to Peter Sands, who is the art, art um, the author of the uh, of the paper, uh, points out in certain circles the five hundred euro note is known as the quote unquote Bin Laden. Confirms that the argument against you know confirms the argument against it. Sands' extensive analysis is totally convincing on the linkage between high denomination notes and crime. He is surely right that illicit activities are felicitated when a million dollars weighs 2.2 pounds, as with a $500 euro note, rather than 50 pounds, as it would be uh, if they were $20 bills or if $20 bills were the highest denomination note. So notice what he did there. He's talking, the, the article is titled, you know, the kill the $100 bill, he's talking about the $500 euro note, the $100 bill in the U.S., as well as the $50 bill. Um, so just very interesting that they would, that they're implying that somehow I'm a terrorist if I use a $100 bill to buy something. And he goes on to say, more generally, at a time when, oh, excuse me, um, He's equally correct in arguing that that technology is making whatever um, that is making um, $20 bills um, or eliminating the, um, the, the need for high denomination notes in legal commerce. Right. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're the local mafia chieftain and you would like to get a cut of every transaction, then you would like those transactions to all run through a very transparent and trackable system. And if all transactions are running through a digital system and you're taking a cut of all of that, it's very easy to get your cut. If I can you know, walk over to Darnell and be like, hey man, I got 20 bucks, you wanna sell me that sweater? And I can just hand him the cash and take the sweater, you know, that's a harder thing to get your cut. Um, so, you know, you've got that's what's going on all over the world. Governments are trying to phase out cash. And he closes by saying, more generally, at a time when such a demonstration is very much needed, a global agreement to stop issuing high denomination notes would show that the global financial groupings can stand up against, quote, big money and for the interest of ordinary citizens. So it's in the interest of ordinary citizens to phase out high, high denomination yeah. notes. <laughs> because, you know, only terrorists use $100 bills. And 50s. As and well. 50s. So interesting stuff. On, along that same line, and this article actually talks a little bit about the article that Darnell just pointed out. This is from Simon Black at The Sovereign Man. Um, came out on February 17th. title of the article is The Ban on Cash is Coming Soon. Uh, and I'm probably just going to read the whole article. It's really interesting. Um, this is starting to become very concerning. The momentum to ban cash and in particular high denomination notes like the $500 euro and $100 bills is seriously picking up steam. On Monday, the European Central Bank president emphatically disclosed that he is strongly considering phasing out the $500 euro note. Yesterday, uh, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers published an op-ed in the Washington Post about getting rid of the $100 bill. Prominent economists and banks have joined the refrain and called for an end to cash in recent months. The reasoning is almost always the same. Cash is something that only criminals, terrorists, and tax cheats use. In his op-ed, Summers refers to a new Harvard research paper entitled Making It Harder for the Bad Guys, <laughs> the case for eliminating high-denomination notes. 
uh, those Bin Laden notes that Darnell's not. <laughs> I wonder in those same circles, did they did they happen to be aware that uh, Bin Laden was a CIA asset? Right. Right. No, but you know they uh, they don't talk about that. Nor nor dumping him in the ocean in the middle of night with no one watching. Uh, you know, off a boat, <laughs> and then well, yeah, because they didn't want to incite violence. But, you know, they didn't use that same principle when they hung, uh, uh, what's his name, Saddam Hussein on TV or, you know, shot, um, what's his name, uh, the guy Gaddafi. from Libya, Gaddafi yeah. in the street. Right. Like, <laughs> they weren't worried about inciting any, any uh, animosity. From well, them. then, I mean, for that, the, the SEAL team that supposedly raided bin Laden's compound and got him, like, yeah. they killed they're almost all, all dead now. Yeah. <laughs> There's like I don't remember what it was. There was like 36 people or something. Like 19 of them or 20 something of them are dead now. But you know, don't mind the man behind the curtain. Um, that title pretty much sums up the conventional thinking. And the paper goes on to propose abolishing, among others, $500 euro and $100 bills. The author claims that what the author claims that quote without being able to use high denomination notes, those engaged in illicit activities, the quote bad guys of our title would face higher costs and greater risks of detection. Eliminating high denomination notes would disrupt disrupt their business models. Personally, I find this comical. I can just imagine a bunch of bureaucrats and policy wonks sitting in a room pretending to know anything about criminal activity. It's total nonsense. As long as there has been human civilization, there has been crime. Crime predates cash, and it will exist long after they attempt to ban it. Perhaps even more hilarious is that many of these bankrupt governments have become so desperate for economic growth that they now count illegal drug activity and prostitution in their GDP calculations, both of which are typically transacted in cash. So ironically, by banning cash, these governments will end up reducing their own GDP figures. What's really behind this? Why is there such big movements to ban something that is used for felonious purposes by just a fraction of a percent of the population? Cash, it turns out, is the, and this is where it really gets interesting, cash, as it turns out, is the Achilles heel of the financial system. Central banks around the world have kept interest rates at near zero levels for nearly eight years now. And despite having created massive bubbles and enabled extraordinary amounts of debt, their policies aren't working. Especially in Europe, the hope of stoking economic growth and even the sickening goal of inflation has failed. So naturally, since what they've been trying hasn't worked, their response is to continue to try continue trying the same thing and more of it. Interest rates across the European continent are now negative. Japanese interest rates are now negative. And even in the United States, the Federal Reserve has acknowledged that negative interest rates are being considered. They have no other choice. Raising rates will bankrupt the governments they support and derail any fledgling economic growth. Look at how low interest rates are in the U.S. and yet fourth quarter GDP practically ground to a halt. They simply cannot afford to raise rates. As global economic weakness continues to play out, central banks will have no other option but to take interest rates even further into negative territory. That said, negative interest rates will be the destruction of the financial system. Because sooner or later, if banks have to pay negative wholesale interest rates to each other and to the central bank, then eventually they'll have to pass those negative rates on to their customers. Many banks have already started doing this, especially on larger depositors. We've seen this in Europe where some banks charge their customers negative interest to save money and in some extraordinary circumstances pay other customers to borrow money. It's total madness. There's a certain point, however, when interest rates become so negative that no rational person would hold money in the banking system. 
Eventually, people will realize that they're better off withdrawing their money and holding physical cash. Sure, cash doesn't pay any interest, but it doesn't cost any either. If you have $200,000 in your savings account at negative 1%, you'd have to pay the bank two grand each year. Clearly, it would make more sense to buy a safe and hold most of your money in cash. Problem is, the banks don't have the money. For starters, there's literally not enough cash in the entire financial system to pay out more than a fraction of all bank deposits. More importantly, banks, especially in the US and Europe, are extremely illiquid. They invest the vast majority of your deposit in illiquid loans or securities of dubious long-term value, whatever the latest stupid investment fad happens to be. And many banks have been change engaging in a substantial balance sheet shift, rotating bonds from what's called available for sale to hold to maturity. This is an accounting trick to use to hide losses in their bond portfolios, but it also means that they have less liquidity available to support bank customer withdrawal requests. The natural side effect of negative interest rates is pushing people to hold money outside of the banking system. And you know, that's why you're seeing all of these pushes to get people in the banking system, because they know negative interest rates are, are what they're planning. Um, yet it's clear that a surge of withdrawal requests would bring down that system. Banks don't want that to happen. Governments don't want that to happen. But since central banks have no other choice than to continue imposing negative interest rates, the only logical option is to ban cash and force consumers to hold their money within the banking system. Exactly. Make no mistake, this is absolutely a form of capital controls, and it's coming soon to a banking system near you. Analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Analysis from our policy wonks. <laughs> the wonk blog. <laughs> Right. So, you know, there you go. We've touched on a lot of this stuff before. Um, and again, I mean, I think this is why, you know, we, it's like risk is just not priced in to most assets right now in the world in both ways. So, I mean, for example, uh, you can buy a, a Spanish, Spain, Spanish government bond that's paying like practically zero or even negative, I'm not sure, um, but paying near zero. And, you know, it was two, three years ago that Spain was talking about defaulting on debt. So you've got a, that's a high risk investment to buy a Spanish bond and it's pay, and it's not reflected. You know, that should be paying 15% or some, some reasonable rate of return for the risk inherent in Spanish debt, yet it's not. And that same point can be made on the other side. So, you know, look at the risks to the banking system, look at the risks to government sol solvency um, is that priced into assets like gold and silver? Not at all. What about the risks to the global food supply? Is that priced into farmland? Not at all. Um, so, you know, you can, you can sit with your money in, in high risk places like the stock market, banks, bonds, um, paying very little or in the stock market, you know, that's had a great run because as, uh, we have a zero interest rate environment, money, money printing environment, that money needs to find a home and it needs to find an inflation beating rate of return. And it very often finds the stock market. I mean, if you look at a chart of the money supply and a chart of the stock market, they're very, very similar charts. Um, so you can, you know, you could, you can do that or you can put your money in assets that do not also do not have the risk priced in, but do not have the risk. <laughs> so, you know, you can buy for for very cheap farmland or uh, gold and silver and, and you're hedged against the global financial risks and you're buying it at a price that doesn't reflect the risks to the global financial system. So, you know, there's my, my two cents on what you do with your money.
I mean, if you think about what gold prices were in 2013 and compare that to where they are now, you've had more money printing. You've had, um, yeah, more debasing of the currency, and yet gold and silver are below their 2013 prices. Right. Way below. I mean, I remember specific. Yeah, 20. Oh, yeah, right. Way, way below. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, what is gold now? Goes around, what, 11, 1200? Yeah. You know, and. In uh, in 2013, you're looking at prices, you know, above $1,300 an ounce. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, silver. I mean, silver was up to 50 at one point, uh, or 30. What was it? You know what? I'm I'm talking without. Let me just check a chart. I I I'm terrible with numbers. I always forget. But um, but yeah, I mean, silver has dropped, and gold. I mean, they generally trade together. Um, has dropped a huge percentage since since its highs when people were kind of going crazy for it around 2013, like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, I was taking a minute to load here, but um, yeah. So that's some of the investment stuff. I will look up this chart uh, momentarily. Another. Uh, interesting piece of news is that airlines are considering requiring proof of vaccination not only for international travel but for domestic travel as well so that's mildly scary yeah yeah that'll probably be the end of uh of my time getting on planes at that point (laughs) (laughs) check your vaccination history yeah. They'll probably ask you um, you know, about your tax returns as well too. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, here we go. Here's a 5-year chart of gold, of silver. Okay, so I was way off. Oh no, well this only goes back to 2014. Uh, keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um so yeah, gold and silver. I mean, the other point that I would make along those lines as well too is, um, you know, farmland here in Ecuador, really all over the developed world, in places where they're dependent on um, on oil revenue, and oil revenue has fallen uh, a good deal um, year over year, and so you've got. Um, a lot of countries that are not using the dollar, unlike Ecuador, say, for example, in Brazil or in Colombia or in Chile or Peru, where, you know, their currencies have fallen in excess of 50 percent year over year, where you can find, you know, farmland in those countries as well, too. Uh, in Ecuador, that's played out a little bit differently. Uh, you don't have you do have the dollar, um, but at the same time, you know, the if you compare those two countries, well, and the U.S. money supply is is abundant, and here U.S. money supply is scarce, and so um, you've got people who maybe have overextended themselves with loans who now have to find a way to repay those loans, and so um, you know what are they doing to raise the capital for that? Well, they're liquidating their you know their assets and land, which you know creates a situation where you have many more properties for sale than than uh than the current uh market demand would suggest and because of that you've got uh a lot of great deals uh mainly the one that we were talking about earlier in the show 
um, that recently came down from 250 to 218. Uh, you know, abundant uh, water sources, lots of places to cultivate or to build. Um, and it's a property that, you know, has real uh, intrinsic value. Right. Um, and then and there's a couple others, you know, right. several others we several have others. that meet all those requirements as well in the same price range. I mean, between like 220 and 240, basically, for gigantic productive fincas with water and everything. Um, so here we go. So, yeah, so in 2011, it looks like March March 2011, um, silver got up to 40, just under 47. Cur- currently at uh, 15 and change. Wow. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if you, if you charted that against the money supply, those would be going in the opposite direction. Right. And that's why it's such an amazing opportunity right now. Exactly. Exactly. In gold? Let me pull gold up. Yeah, that would be interesting to see as well, too. Probably not as uh, extreme. No, not quite, but, sim- but similar chart. Mm-hmm. Um, so gold in July 2011 got up to 1838 thereabouts. Wow, 1838. And then got all the way down at one point to, you know, 1050 or 60, not that long ago. Right. A couple months ago or so, right? Yeah, a few months, yeah. So no. again, you've got assets and we've talked about this before. These are, you know, these are manipulated markets through through naked short selling. Um the big players can do whatever they want essentially with the price of paper, gold and silver, and that's partly because um the assets, the physical gold and silver don't have to back up the paper contracts of gold and silver and you can naked short sell. So um, I don't have to borrow the shares to sort short sales, short sell. So if I want to put downward pressure on the price of the paper, the paper price of the metal, I can do so very easily, which happens all the time. And again, that's why you have a chart that doesn't make any sense. You've had, you've had money printing through the, you know, to oblivion. And what does that do? It creates inflation. What's the hedge against inflation? Gold and silver. What have gold and silver done since 2012? Dropped precipitously. So, you know, that doesn't make, that does not make any sense. Um, so, there you go. Okay, um, what else did we want to cover today? Did you have uh, other stuff before we wrap up? I think that was it. Okay. Um, interesting Simon Black article as well about the government, you know, quote, borrowing <laughs> your retirement savings. Uh, maybe we'll get into that next time, but. But that is also, you know, on the docket. We've been talking about that for a number of years, actually. Yeah, so that we should cover next week as well as that, um, that uh, article about the Baltic shipping index as well. Oh, right, which rebounded slightly since that news came out. Basically, the, the dry, Baltic dry index, they call yeah. it. Yeah, uh, which is widely considered like the best leading economic indicator. Um, hit a record low uh, maybe three weeks ago. Um, and rebounded a little bit, but and that you know you've got that uh, in tandem with stores l- closing locations all over the states in the world and laying people off as well. I mean, major corporations mm-hmm. such as IBM and uh, J.C. Penney and a number of others. Well, good. Anything else? Uh, no, that's. Uh, 
I could have, you know, I'm telling you, this was better the first time we recorded yeah, it. No, it was much better. We lost our luster here yeah. a little bit. No, the, the energy was a lot better the last time. Uh, and the segues as well, too. Yes. But, you know, hey, we'll, uh, we'll get him next You'll time. You'll have to take our word for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just to wrap up, um, for more information about properties, blog, post, podcast, you can find all that information on our website at www.abequador.com. That's A as in apple, B as in boy.com. You can also reach us toll-free from the U.S. and Canada at 888-999-0948 or via email at info at abequador.com. Thanks for tuning in and uh, check in with us next week. Take care. Bye-bye.